Welcome. I am incredibly excited today uh, to be joined by Peter, who's a, a longtime friend and collaborator in the in the PLG space. I had the pleasure of meeting him when he was running uh, growth back at IBM uh, before working more together when he was running marketing at Safety Culture. Um, and now uh, very exciting times where uh, he is running a, a PLG agency, uh, Unlocking Growth. So definitely um, big time PLG expert and someone that has seen many different facets of uh, PLG at companies, big and small. And so really, really excited to have you on the show, Peter. Uh, thanks a ton for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Really looking forward to it, Francis. Absolutely. So I guess jumping right into it, I think what, what's been really interesting in, um, you know, you being able to, to see so many um, different company sizes and, and companies trying to, uh, to do PLG, I think one of the, um, the things that you've seen is like how companies can struggle from either going from, you know, like a sales led motion and layering on PLG or on the flip side, actually having PLG and um, layering on sales. So maybe I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit, um, like what are some of the, the core struggles that uh, people run into when they're trying to uh, layer on a PLG approach in a sales motion, which is kind of like, you know, a lot of the talk right now with like the, the economy going down and like VC saying you have to be more efficient and PLG seems to be the savior. So maybe like, what are some of the, the learnings that you've seen from companies you've uh, worked at or worked with uh, when it comes to adding PLG to a, a sales led motion? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I'm seeing it a lot with, with clients, um, a lot actually here in, here in Australia, so in the smaller economies. Um, but fundamentally, I think what I've observed is really there's kind of three key um, uh, inhibitors to kind of like really creating that bridge between, you know, sales and PLG. Um, and they seem to be around culture differentiation and a true misunderstanding of what PLG is all about. Um, so what I've seen is there's the cultural baggage there is classically when you see smaller companies with sales-led founders classically when you see sales organizations um, that are built by leaders of sales who've come from very traditional enterprise type sales they haven't yet understood kind of what it is and so they've perceived this misperception rather that it's, it's competitive that's one or the other and it's kind of it drives kind of that third front but it's this culture of saying i can't sell and X, especially in the B2B space, I can't sell a multi tens of thousands, hundred thousand dollars or million dollar deals, you know, without a handshake, without a physical sales process, without understanding where PLG fits in. So I think the first one is this cultural element. Second one, I think, is differentiation um, and really understanding. And I, I, we saw this a lot where you've got conflict between not just sales conflict, but between PLG and sellers. And so it's like, does the BDR get credit? Does the salesperson get credit? Or was it because of PLG? So really without, without that understanding, um, I've seen kind of this, this gaps and kind of this, this inhibition. And the third one, and I think it's, it's related to both of those two and the core behind it is a really misunderstanding of PLG. And there's this false dichotomy. Um, I was speaking at a conference probably a few weeks ago here in, in Sydney and in front of a few hundred people we were talking about this exact topic. And I asked the audience and I put up some, some key PLG companies up there, the classics, Canva, Slack, Zoom, Calendly up there. And I had actually done some research around how many companies, like what proportion have employees. And I asked the audience, I said, you know, and I, 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 I trunched it out and I said, you know, where, how many employees do you think have sa are sales in these companies? And they always underestimated 
consistently. And what we found in the broad majority with just one or two exceptions was they have roughly 30% of, of PLG, things that we call classic PLG companies, have sales teams. So it's really this misunderstanding. And, and we see it in, once again, back to that earlier part of sales-led founders or companies that are really growing. It's like, well, I sold because I knew Jim and Jim knew Jane and Jane knew Bob and Bob knew Fred and Fred knew Frida. And, and, it's like, and so they sold through this, this traditional sales-led approach. And so saying that you've got to adopt this PLG um, they don't understand how to, to model that in a scale environment. So I think kind of those three, like really around the culture, the differentiation and really understanding what PLG is the inhibitor. When it comes to execution, it actually becomes quite simple to execute, but you've just got to get over that first fear, this first kind of getting out over that first step of seeing where does PLG fit, where does a sales motion fit, um, and we can kind of touch on that more, but really when, they, when you understand those two intersections and how they do interlock, then, then sales is all on board. And then you find you have this cohesive PLG motion that's run by, you know, collaborated or coordinated by marketing, product and sales, where they're working together to define PLG. And then when appropriate, sales comes in. Yeah, it, it's a funny one. And I, I feel like Atlassian is, has like pretty big responsibility in that misunderstanding that PLG companies don't have salespeople. Because I think for the longest time, there was this kind of like, mythology that was built around Atlassian not having salespeople, then you would go on LinkedIn and figure out, okay, they have a different name. It's like either account managers or, or whatever they wanted to call it, but it was basically salespeople. Um, yeah. So definitely something that I, I find a lot of people are uh, like, don't realize that a lot of these companies have like big sales team that actually run hardcore enterprise sales uh, motions that might be fueled by some of the PLG, but they're still, there are still a lot of the the handshakes that are um, that are happening there, um, and that's spot spot on. I think that's really the exciting part is like when you when you get like they've. It's true. It was kind of the uh, the misunderstanding of how Atlassian ran in the markets kind of fueled some of that conversation. But when you see kind of how it's how, how the you know the the hunter versus the farmer operates in PLG versus sales. That's really where that beauty comes in. And so you see really those, the, the sales focusing on really like fishing in a barrel. Like they are, they're no longer just like drift net fishing in the middle of the ocean. Let the PLG motion do that because it's a cheaper channel. You let it go and churn through people. And, and as that, as, as your, um, uh, as your, uh, as it's bringing in, the fish. So it's like when dolphins, I was just recently watching um, a documentary and it showed the dolphins herding the fish into a giant ball. Mm -hmm. And once it herded them into a ball, then the dolphins went into attack and they had a, had a feast. But that's really what a giant, like a PLG motion with, with sales is. It's like first you hawk, this is probably a, a bad, a bad way to describe <laughs> it, but you see all those prospects together, they're high intense and then they can go, then, then sales can go feasting. So it's almost like moving the hunter farmer to a like almost like farmer only style of, of sales motion, right? You're like moving like further and further away and you're letting the, the product kind of do the, the hunting. Completely, completely. When, when, uh, when, when uh, I was at Safety Culture, I had a great model in which PLG motion just drove people into using the it was a freemium model freemium free trial so it drove them into that model and so you started getting uh, a lot more people with, with high intent coming through you're nurturing them to get to success so what happened was that was all a self-serve kind of model so they came into that point then when sales came in 
what that they all they had to do was they didn't need to look at LinkedIn or they did, but not not for the purpose of, of outbound. What it was was let's look at who's already using the platform because there you've determined determined two things. You've determined number one their intent. You can see that they're intent and they've been educated on the tool. And the second thing is you can determine their behaviors. Based on their behaviors, you can work out, are they a high value prospect? And the upside is your high cost sales model, because you've got to pay for higher acquisition because of, of the sales team, actually has higher value contracts. So your ACV goes up. And so therefore you're only paying for high ACV, not the credit card swipes. Right. And, and safety culture had a fairly low uh, cost per user, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, as I said, it was differentiated between kind of your, your broader base free trial, freemium model, and your higher touch where you were selling into, you know, safety cultures in some of the biggest retail chains in the world. It's in some, it's right. some of the biggest hotels in the world. In those, you absolutely had that high touch model. Um, and so you then had investment in teams and investment in structures, but on that, 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 uh, the, the low touch bringing people in, it was all, you know, it was all very, it was very automated. There was very little humans, uh, in that process. Right. And it allowed to kind of like the, do the, the land and expand motion almost programmatically, right. Of like having a few people using it in the field. And then you kind of like roll into the, I guess, like the, um, local entity and then potentially to the national entity and then potentially yeah. to the international entity. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm super curious to hear, cause it's like, I mean, you mentioned it, right? Credit, I think is one of the biggest challenges when it comes to um, running, you know, having sales on top of PLG or combined with PLG. And so one of the challenges here, right? Even if we take the example of safety culture, right? You have people that might be, you know, on the verge of swiping the credit card, they might swipe the credit card for 10 team members or something like that. And, and reps might see it like, Oh, like I'm, this is like cannibalizing some of my revenue. Cause like this, you know, this account that's in my book of accounts is converting without me. So i um, curious to hear, like, you know, was anything done from a quota perspective, accelerators or how, you know, how did you infuse this culture to, to tell them it's okay. Like the fact that they're swiping the credit card is fine. They're actually, very likely to upgrade 50 more seats in the next six months? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think it's, it's interesting because in safety culture, I think we had a great model. In IBM, we iterated trying through various models. Um, and when I look at clients now, there's kind of, there's, there's, there's the pure view and then there's complexity on top of the pure view. So the pure view is PLG powers your, your inbound, your acquisition, bring them into the lower tiers. Um, if you've got a hardware product, it powers the e-commerce engine, for example. Um, and then, um, and then sales does the land and expand and it works really because you've now split the world quite cleanly. All right. And so there's no conflict. And so what is sales incented on? They're not on swiping credit cards. So that's kind of in the, in the purest view works really well when you can get there, but complexity arises. And so complexity happens in a few spaces. Number one, when you've got a complicated product that you can't self-serve. We saw that at IBM. Um, didn't I've seen it at one or two of my clients where they they the, the products are not simple to self serve and understand value itself. So PLG on its own with some pop ups and some guidance and some nurturing and some emails and you know maybe some limited live chat support doesn't work on its own to drive value to the user. And so then you've got a front end of BDRs. And so then the BDRs are in there. 
The challenge with that model is that now the BDRs claim credit for everything from a password reset through to actually in-depth engagement. So you're really, so those BDRs, um, one way that we solve that or best practice, I think we solve that at Safety Culture, and I've now seen in a couple of other places as well done well, is all support questions during that PLG motion are handled by support who are not incentive, who don't have a quota. Okay, so it's the support teams who are there and whether you're free support or, or premium support or paid, you're a paid versus a free. Um, if you can build the model successfully, then then they can deliver success and customers really value that support front end during that that early trial freemium model. Like when they're, they're still experiencing and trying to get that value, support drives huge value. The conversations I had with many customers when they would just say, I spoke to support, we solved this and I reached out seven times and then they solved it, but then they became much larger customers later on. So I think the first complexity is there, is in that first, that PLG, when there's conflict there and the ideal is you really remove BDRs. I think there is now a transition today in the market to move away from that. The second complexity is... Um, the, the second best practice that we saw that is kind of clean coverage models. You cover a region, you cover an industry, like, you know, really clearly segmenting and architecting the world so that sales is, is never overlapping because when it overlaps, that's where the complexity occurs. Um, works well in, in mid-sized companies, um, you know, when you've got, you know, at that point, 300, up, probably up to 1,000 employees, um, like that size of company, you, you, can, you can probably get away with that because at that point you've, you've got enough, um, you can easily carve up the world. It's like in the, what they call it, in the, in the US when you've got to do the borders for elections. Gerrymandering? Or well, that's the bad way of doing it, but yeah. yes. <laughs> um, so, so I think kind of when, when you've done that, it's a best practice. So therefore you could say you, you want to really be the, fair to your sales team, understanding their skills and then, but focus it on, it's not the broader audience. You're not talking about the macro environment. It's about your customer base. Cause if you've got, let's say 10,000 freemium pre-trial active users, that's the people who you're segmenting. And that's what you're defining coverage against. Okay. And you can segment by, as I said, by region, by industry, by its number of employees. So segment size, there's a whole series of ways you can segment that. And that generally works quite well. The complexity happens when you start to overlap. And overlapping is when you're north of that 500,000 employee range, what you're doing is you've now got industry-specific teams, but then you've got regional-specific teams, for example. At IBM, we had an even more sophisticated model because if you can think, you've got tens of thousands of salespeople around the world covering you know, all different, different, um, uh, different facets of the business. And so a single account may be covered by one, two, three, actually more than one, two, three, four layers of sales teams. I've got my regional sales team. I've got my industry sales team. I've got my accounting sec, for example. All right. And so when you've got that multi-layers, how do you split that credit? As much as possible, you want to flatten, but you can't flatten too much because each of those teams does bring value to the conversation. Um, one practice that is, is great is when you, when you award it, is that the team gets credit and then the account leader allocates the credit. It's a bit subjective. So there's always some, you know, the moment you start going to subjective subjectivity in, in quota models, uh, people get, you know, there's, there's a bit of uh, concern and tension. And then you, um, and when you go to a team-based model, people lose that personal drive. Okay. So, yeah. so there's a, there's a downside to it. Um, the, the, if you're in a massive high growth space and you're not worried about inefficient growth, which at the moment is probably the worst thing to be talking about, you just go and give everyone equal credit. 
Um, but in times like a year ago, I would have said, go do that, see if you can get that connection and then optimize it over time. Um, but that obviously, you know, only has a limited shelf life. Um, but yeah, ideally you want to, you want to structure that. And then what's really important that makes it all power is if you can get your, your scoring coming out of your PLG so that you can target those teams more effectively. So if your scoring is really effective around intent, around behaviors, so that out of that pool of 10,000, 100,000, 5,000, whatever that number is in that pool that PLG have now nurtured that, that, that pool of people, then, then you can then go and say, well, out of that, 3% are actually ready to go to sales. I can actually pluck those out and then kind of surface those 3% to the team. So that, that really helps powerful. Um, and I think the, the last part that, that's really, it's, I say the jury's out, but they're starting to be a shift, which is on customer success and whether they should have quotas. And the purists in the world say customer success should never have revenue quotas. And I think there's been a real shift in the last 18 months where more and more customer success teams are getting quota. So you, there's a pros and cons to obviously to both of those, but by saying to give them quota, you're allowing them to be a bit more accountable with a business return on the success because most CS teams are actually great at managing customers. They're really good. Their challenge is they've generally got hundreds to thousands of individual customers to manage. How do they do it? The more scoring they can get, can actually help them target their time. And so therefore they can focus on the ones that are, you know, if customers are doing all right, maybe you don't need to touch them this month. Maybe you'll come back to them next month. If there's a real problem, they can go and intervene and start reflecting and, and start optimizing that. And that can affect your churn figures. And maybe, and there is a generally a churn figure associated with customer success. But then on the upside is if a customer's doing well and they foster that relationship to kind of drive an increased renewal, an upsell or a cross-sell of some sort, then there is huge value there. And so there definitely has been a, a shift. While it used to be kind of two camps of CS, there's, the camp is now a bit bigger to give CS quotas. Yeah. And I think if I remember correctly, one of the things you were saying is that um, at IBM, and I think, I mean, even for, for context, I think it's, it's important for people listening to, I think it, sometimes it's hard to understand the complexity of IBM without having <clears throat> interacted with the company, but like, we're talking about like 350 different products, right? Yeah. Like this is like the equivalent of 350 different companies operating under one umbrella and like, layers of reps that you were talking about that are uh yeah from like the regional the industry the account owner the you know product specialist all that all that stuff so um i and i i think i remember you saying that ibm you know even on the like account manager versus cs side like who would handle contracts and renewal those like something that went back and forth um is that what you're saying that like the jury is still out but you feel like it's getting closer towards like cs still being accountable for the number even though they might not handle the paperwork exactly so so definitely there is it's it's more around are they are they um uh, do they get credit for the for the for the deal yes but they mm -hmm. still work hand in hand with the account manager so you're really you're making sure that they're still not responsible for the sale that's still the account manager so it encourages them to work closely with the account manager their focus needs to be customer success like at the end of the day and making those customers happy so they're doing qbrs they're looking at customer behaviors they're looking at ways to drive account success so 
that's still their primary focus. But now you're adding the added objective that, okay, but we, one of the measurements of that is going to be revenue. And so when you've got identified that and you listen, you hear a different opportunity. And like you said, and it's, it's exactly right, in IBM with multiple hundreds of products, the challenge there is as a CS person, you have to be accountable or knowledgeable across many hundreds of products. So if you're managing a large account, you've got to work out how do I, um, uh, how do I understand and pulling the right account rep. So yes, there is an account rep for product A versus account rep for product B as opposed to client rep. So yes, that, that, that scale, um, there is a lot more complexity, but you don't want them to have to manage the deal process, the execution, the financials, the commercials, all that stuff. You allow them just to say, hey, I think this customer is interested in ABC, and then they just do the handoff. Right. And I mean, there, there's a parallel with kind of the SDR world where it's about like almost like getting the the customer to a meeting and then like handing over the, like the handling of the kind of selling part to, uh, to the AM. Um, but on the, so at, at IBM, like you were like one of your core focuses, uh, was on, uh, the cloud, uh, side of things like, uh, and what was interesting about that one. It's, uh, it was a consumption based model. And I think there's a lot of companies that are coming out with consumption based models, um, that, you know, are still trying to figure out how to monetize uh, properly and even like how to hand things over to, to sales, right? Because there's an easy like, you know, pay as you go, but then we actually would like you to buy, you know, a year's worth of credits upfront because that's a little bit better from a cash flow perspective. So the CFO is pushing there, but the developers who are swiping the credit card are not super excited about signing annual upfront. So I'm really curious if you can share a little bit of a, um, your perspective on again like still in this context of incentives and, and comp like how should aes be incentivized in a consumption-based model right like who who gets an incentive to book a demo if the you know account swipes the credit card there's a lot of complexity there but yeah just curious to hear uh what your yeah. recommendation is for those that context yeah and, and this is this is where kind of trialing kind of a, th th this was Kind of seeing the evolution of a few models so originally the model was you know people if if an, an ae or an sdr was swiped if if an, a customer swiped a credit card and the sdr was involved in a conversation or an interaction they got credit for it that was the earlier models okay not great because as i said like it created everything from you know i need a password reset or a simple how so they would just go and game it and say hey how are things going in a live chat or a simple email and that was just enough for them to kind of get tagged to the, to, the, to the swipe. So number one, you just don't want that to happen. Where the AEs get real value and where you can kind of build the, the great comp models that we, that, that we saw is they've got classic, here's a coverage, here's a quota, but it's based on, but it only applies for a contract, not for a, so So the contracts can still be consumption-based. All right, so it's not as a pay-as-you-go model. So pay-as-you-go um, is the credit is credit card usage based, um, and you pay after after the fact. Um, but if you can go to a contract where the AE, so you say, okay, take that consumption model, and then turn it into an annualized contract. So for example, if on average um, we pay twenty dollars, just do some round numbers, twenty dollars a month for a um, hundred units. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to do an annualized contract for the year. You pay twenty four hundred dollars, 
and I will give you a hundred units per month. And if you go over, I charge you an overage or, or, or kind of come up with a model there. So it's still consumption based, but you've got a minimum layer. And what you do is you're incenting, you're incenting the, the, um, you incent the, the AE on just the contracted part, not the overage, not the potential overage. So what that does is it creates the incentive in the AE to try and get that as large as possible because you want the minimum monthly commit from the customer to be as high as possible. Um, but also if there is overage, there's some upside and they get it. Um, when a classic AE or kind of classic in a smaller company where it's like get your 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 you're on the transaction, you get credit, that's great. Where you've got an account manager, account director, and you've got a slightly larger like ownership of the account, then you can go and say, well, then they can also get credit on the overage because now it's back to the CS play, okay, where you're saying, say, well, account, account in larger accounts, um, in, you know, moderate, mid-sized to larger companies, you've actually got dedicated, you know, you've got a dedicated salesperson, your account manager is linked to that. So linked to that account, so it's total spend of the account. Okay, so that that makes sense in that. So I guess it's about tiering your top end accounts, you know, your larger accounts, your fortune 50s that are your customers, you want to have focused sales teams and make sure that they're successful. And those account teams are working, you know, hand in glove with customer success, and they own the total revenue, the ones in the middle, it's based on just the minimum commits of the contract. And so you're giving them you know, percentage of that. Did, I'm, I'm curious like if you remember of uh, any potential like either emails or plays that worked really well to help you know get companies uh, away from a pay-as-you-go style model into annual contracts because that's something that a lot of companies struggle with like you know our customer tells us they're happy with you know paying as they whatever they use uh, so I'm yeah. curious if there were like any things that you know uh, come back to memory as kind of like success stories of getting customers to their annual commit. Yeah. Oh, completely. So, so there is, there, there's, it's, it's interesting. And this is part of that presentation I gave a, um, uh, a few weeks ago is one of the things that is this misperception that customers are happy with pay as you go. And what the reality is, is that they've got different mindsets. There's a mindset, which is I need to solve a tactical problem today here and now, and I want to deal with overhead product-led, I'm going pay-as-you-go completely. They, they're in that mindset. But there is a shift that happens. I either have to scale up my product, I have to scale up this product or the usage within the company. I've got a budget to commit to. So the CFO has said, this is my budget. As we're getting into, into really rough times ahead, rough waters ahead, people are getting stricter with budgets. And so, and also because I'm scaling, there are things that I don't know. Okay, so things, you know, it worked great for my team, but I'm not sure if I'm ready for the whole company. You know, at IBM, I would easily have a few hundred to a few thousand dollars a month on my corporate credit card with consumption-based tools to test out, but they weren't ready to scale to IBM. That was just to validate, does it make sense? Does it work? When in, but then I had to switch gears and run to a sales-led model. I need to speak to a salesperson and do an annual commit for those other reasons because to scale at IBM, there's problems I haven't even thought about when I scale out an automation tool, when I scale out a data tool, when I scale out an analytics tool, when I scale out like any of those other solutions that you could potentially be thinking about, you need you need that support. So first there's a mind shift, okay? So it's real, really saying, okay, if, if a customer's happy on the consumption model, but they're keeping it, they're not massively increasing or decreasing or expecting much change, 
that that then then they're going to say, well, I don't really need anything. But the moment something changes, budget constraints, um, uh, as if budget constraints, scaling out, you know, looking at different use cases, then they want that support. And then they're looking to an annual contract. What does the annual contract give them? It gives them visibility of advanced spending. Okay, so when the CFO says, how much is this going to cost? Well, it's like, we've spent X dollars per month for the last 12 months. I expect it to be the same. And the CFO says, can you be sure? Because inflation is at 7 to 10%. Are you going to lock that? How are you going to lock that down? Well, now I'm in a contract, it's an annual contract. And in the annual contract, the seller has some, you know, some incentive to provide a discount. It's like, listen, I'll lock you in for 12 months. I'll give you a discount. But in the process, you know, there, there might be some other you know, simple perks, but something as simple as that. That's the first thing. Second thing is when you sell to a sub team, one of the challenges is that sub team has very siloed view. All they're thinking about is their particular use case. But if your product works in other use cases, they're not thinking about that. You know, especially mid to larger size companies, they're already in silo mode. You know, sub 100, sub 200 people, sub 300 people, everyone knows each other. Okay, and you can do that. North of 300, no, no, no one knows each other. Silos have started to establish. It's like, I'm in the engineering team and I bought this tool and it works great for my engineering team. Do you know it could be, no, 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 I've got it for the engineering team, but it could be, no, 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 I'm, I'm like, this is my use case. No one's actually realized, like number of companies I go to and I'm interviewing the whole C-suite and I speak to one team and they tell me, well, we're using A, B, C, D and the other team is saying, I'm looking at using B. Do you know that you've already got a contract for B? No. All right. It's just like there's a lot of that. Stuff. And it's not intentional. It's just the nature of large organizations as you start to build in a couple of layers of management. You know, and even if it's super flat, there's no way everyone knows everything that's going on across the company. So, so I think the inset. So first is there is a natural incentive as you're scaling. Completely natural. Doesn't need to be economic. But then there is an economic about um, of visibility. It's purely visibility. And then there's obviously the one around the discount. I'll give you a a 5% discount, 10% if you sign a 12 month contract, because you know, when the 12 months is due, they're going to increase, they're going to continue. If, obviously if they're using the product on the assumption that they're using the product, they're going to increase and you're going to get the LTV and you'll provide a, provide a discount now. Makes sense. Um, and then who, um, who'd you reach out to in that kind of like, well, it's like consolidation play, right? Where you have like one team, um, using the tool and then like team, if team B is evaluating is I guess like, Actually, no, it's pretty interesting. Like, do you have the the rep who's potentially talking to the person evaluating go to the person who's already paying or um, or a third person? Or I'm just curious, like, what you've seen work there? Yeah, so so I think there's a, there's a few different plays. Um, so ideally, the person who's using your product and the customer is your internal advocate. Mm -hmm. And so the best thing you can do is educate them. So if your internal customer is Jane, Jane, let me tell you everything that you're already buying this and using this, but did you know and educate them? That's the ideal scenario. It works really well because you've already bridged the internal procurement processes. You've already bridged internal usage. You've already kind of identified value and you're already in the financial systems. Like just those things alone are huge. And then having an internal advocate there's high, there's far more credence. So that's the ideal scenario. Um, ways that I've seen that have not been successful and generally a bit frowned upon are where you've got um, uh, where you've got 
the AEs just randomly reaching out to other people in the company. I email the CEO, I email the CPO, I email the CTO, I email the CMO. They're not taking my calls. <laughs> it, it, you've got to be very deft and delicate with that because your internal customer is going to say, what are you doing? Number one. And number two, it's, it's already perceived as um, there's a certain grace that's missing there. And I think it requires a certain finesse if you're going to go down that path. Um, if you are impromptu, hey, I know you're using this product and the, the, the ways of doing it gently, which is I know you're using this product. It's been a great success. I've been working with Jane. Jane's been fantastic. Um, love doing it. If at any time you want to hear more about how Jane's gotten success and turn it into that play, but you make sure Jane knows that you're reaching out. Okay. So that, so that, uh, that works, that, that, that I think is, is one way um, to kind of drive that. So I think that's uh, probably one of the, the, the more successful ways if your internal customer is not, you know, very you know, proactive, you know, especially if they've kind of heads down, you know, heads down, bums up, focusing on, on solving a problem, they're not interested in trying to get other people to use your product. Yeah. That, that makes a ton of sense. Um, and so as we get uh, close to the top of the hour, I wanted to go through uh, what's almost my favorite section of the, the quick fire round. So um, trying to get through this one quickly, I'm, I'm curious to hear um, from your perspective, again, like given the companies that you've worked with, uh, where do you think SDRs should live in the organization, especially in a PLG context, sales, marketing, growth? Uh, what do you think is ideal? Oh, um, wow. Uh, lo loaded question. Um, I've had them live in marketing. I've had them live in, in, in sales. I've never had them live in growth, um, which is interesting. Um, although some people are misusing the word growth yeah. to mean sales, but let's ignore that for the moment. Um, but if we, the best model, I think that the, the best model that I've seen the most efficient is where it lives within sales. In larger organizations, it generally lives within marketing because marketing wants to validate the MQLs. And if you do things properly within in a hybrid PLG model, then you've actually got the MQLs, the MQ, the PQLs driving what SDRs are looking for, not necessarily is a bit less than the MQLs. So the MQLs, you let that drive the the the, the freemium, the, the PLG motion. And that PLG motion generates the PQLs that get into the SDRs who live in sales. And that way SDRs can work uh, very close hand in hand with the uh, account execs. Makes sense. Um, looking at the like different tech stacks that you've seen, uh, is there kind of a tech stack for PLG that's kind of emerging? Uh, I, so I think at the end of the day, I think there's about three or four key capabilities. So at the core PLG kind of has three under, fundamental capabilities, a CDP, an analytics platform, and an automation platform. So top contenders, segments as a CDP, analytics, typically amplitude, mixed panel, and then in the automation space, typically the um, uh, typically there's um, uh, customer IO or intercom, for example. Like those are the, I think those are the biggest players to date. Um, I think once, once you add in the sales part, then scoring becomes an important part. Obviously, Mad could do. Um, you know, your company, France, I think is a, is a powerful one. It's probably the best model I've seen. So I think that's 
And then how does that integrate with Salesforce? Like those, that or Salesforce or HubSpot or whichever CRM is being used, like that kind of, I think, becomes the, the, the key play for a PLG and then a PLG plus sales motion. So you really evolve that across. On the back end, you're also going to overlay in a couple of others such as subscription and subscription billing um, and payment. So it's classically Stripe, Chargeify, Chargebee kind of form that foundational part to do that self-processing. And then even when it's in the, um, seen a lot of companies with a sales motion evolve to a bit more of a PL motion when it comes to the subscription billing by implementing those subscription management systems so that they can change their pricing simply. Like there's a whole factor or a whole facet rather of, P, of product led that's not just around acquisition, around charging pricing billing that you, you want to even pure sales companies, pure sales led companies have to uh, are transitioning to. Right. And, and I mean, at the scale of a lot of these PLG companies, like any like small change on that, uh, even like monthly recurring fee side can be massive. So the economies of scale and like the impact on like overall yeah. like cash flow can be gigantic. Um, the, 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 it's, it's interesting on that one. Most companies that increase are massively growing are growing because they increase increase their prices. Yeah. There's and no like huge lever, huge yeah. lever. And it's like, and it's, it's, it's subtle in the way that it's being done, but you see it. And if you looked under the covers for, I'd say two thirds of every announcement of growth are driven by revenue, by pricing increases. Yeah. I mean, it's easiest way to double your, uh, your AR, right? Bingo. Bingo. Um, <laughs> and, and last question before I, I let you go. Uh, the most important one, uh, what's your favorite Nick Cage movie? Oh, dude. Um, I'd have to say face off. Nice. Yeah. Yep. Travolta, Nick Cage. It's a classic. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Very much approved. Well, Peter, thanks a ton again for uh, being on the show. Hopefully this was super interesting for uh, for folks listening. I know that, yeah, you have a very, very unique uh, experience. I mean, just you know, having been, again, like IBM, like crazy, gigantic company. Safety Culture is a wildly successful company uh, in APAC that, yeah, has a really, I don't know why it's not more well-known in the PLG space, but I think there, there's like something big going on uh, on the Aussie side with a lot of these PLG, like really great companies coming out uh, from there. But so if people want to learn more um, or, you know, interact with you, what's the best way for them to reach out? Yeah, so the best way is uh, peter at unlockinggrowth.co, um, just visit the website or just drop me an email. Um, happy to have a chat and yeah, discuss more. Awesome. Well, thanks again for being here. Hopefully I'll talk to you very soon.